Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This edition marks the second anniversary of FRDH, First Rough Draft of History. I started it because I wanted to provide the historical context that has been lost in journalism. You simply can't understand this strange new era we're living in without understanding the history, recent and not so recent, that led to it. The podcast is entirely self-sustaining, so to see FRDH through another year, please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a contribution. Till now, FRDH has mostly been the thoughts of Chairman Me, but one of my hopes for the coming year is to have more conversations like this one. Dr. Brian Kloss is one of America's brightest young thinkers. Brian is assistant professor in global politics at University College London and a columnist for the Washington Post. He's also the author of three books, including The Despot's Apprentice, Donald Trump's Attack on Democracy. Before that, he worked as deputy campaign manager on Democrat Mark Dayton's victorious run for governor of Minnesota in 2010. That's a pretty full CV for someone who just turned... 32. With the midterms coming up shortly, I went to his office in central London to ask him about the Democrats' dilemma. They're likely to take the House of Representatives in November, but then what? Well, I think they need to think about two things here. Uh, One is how they ensure that they're not just the anti-Trump party, and that's the policy question. So this is, you know, what do you do if you actually win uh, and take power and, and make the narrative be about policy and a vision for the future? And the second thing, I think, is to actually think about how to clean up this mess in terms of institutional reform, because I think what what Trump really has exposed is how weak some of the institutions are, how weak some of the norms are that govern American politics, and they need an agenda to effectively ensure that this can't happen again. So, you know, after Watergate, there was a real cleanup agenda to try to, you know, create ethics reform and things like that. Uh, They need to do that for the, the Trump era. And so, you know, what I would do if I were running as a Democrat now is I would talk about those things that are that should be nonpartisan, the ethics reform. And then I would also present this vision of what in concrete terms a Democratic administration and a Democratic House and Senate would look like in terms of policy change. Well, that that's unexceptionable. Obviously, that's what they need to do. But you have worked at, at the, the sharp end of a campaign for governor in your home state of Minnesota. Now, It's not so easy because the dilemma that the Democrats created for themselves back when I was a teenager of trying to plug in all constituencies in a very obvious way, so in a patchwork quilt kind of way, makes it almost impossible to create a coherent vision because everybody's got to get their bit. And that's why Trump is so helpful to them, because Trump is the unifying thread of the Democratic Party right now. So I think that and I think it's true for voters as well. I mean, the Democrats, I think, are being reasonably smart about how they position themselves strategically in the sense that they are trying to be a big enough party that Joe Manchin of West Virginia can be in the same party as, you know, somebody who's much further left, Bernie Sanders, for example, identifying as a Democrat sometimes. Um, you know, and, and I think that's that's very wise because that's the institutional strength of the elasticity of American party systems relative to European party systems, where you sort of have to have top down control, and you either vote with the you know prime minister or or there's a you know leadership election. So, in that sense, Trump is a gift. But I think the real question is what happens after 
2020 should there be a democratic administration. I don't think this problem actually presents itself in 2018 or 2019 when the House were to be taken because that unifying threat is enough, right? You're, you, the House is effectively going to be a blocker. It will block things that Trump wants to do. It will be oversight. It will be subpoenas. But any sort of democratic policy proposal, say healthcare, the Medicare for all versus, you know, sort of Obamacare light option, that divide exists, but it's totally irrelevant until they actually control all three branches of government, or at least two of the three in the sense that they have the House, the Senate, and the executive. So, you know, this is a situation where, yeah, you're, you're right to say there's real divides. Do they actually matter? I don't think they will in, for several years. Okay, let's look backwards. When did you, my metaphor is arriving at the party. I came in, it seemed like a great big feast was going on in 1968. I didn't realize at the time that actually we're coming to the end of the New Deal era, essentially, and be effectively ruined in 1973 when the great inflation took hold after the Arab oil embargo, and it kind of killed the economy that, that uh, supported a social democratic um, New Deal framing of how America should be run. When did you come into the party? What was your moment of entry? You mean into politics? or uh, Yeah, I mean, when, when yeah. you first became aware of, so sure. that the fresh impressions you have of this is the way it is, even if historically it's actually on decline or on the way up or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think the first real political memory I have was Bill Clinton's impeachment in 98. Uh, and then September 11th, uh, it was very salient for me. I mean, I was, I was a ending my high school days uh, at that point. And then also, uh, you know, the, the entire George W. Bush era. So yeah, I think most people have sort of a socialization into politics who under whoever is the president when they turn 18. And for me, that was George W. Bush. So that era of politics of, you know, sort of rallying around the chief executive after September 11th, and then the sharply divisive politics going into the Tea Party after that uh, was one in which, you know, I became politically active and politically aware. I think that what you're speaking about with that sort of 73 crisis, though, is the looming crisis ahead of automation. Because to me, looking backwards, I think that there's you know this major shift in the economy through globalization that has really gutted a lot of rural communities, a lot of manufacturing jobs, et cetera. And I think the real problem of the Trump era is that you have a situation in which effectively Trump is trying to be the voice of those people while doubling down on the policies that are going to screw them more. So, uh, you know, we have this massive economic shift coming, and both Democrats and Republicans are not articulating a vision of how to deal with automation that will displace a massive amount of people from work, and how a social democratic society copes with that, because, you know, the drivers of inequality are only intensifying, and I think we are going to have a serious cultural and economic reckoning in, say, five to ten years uh, when this gets much worse. The reason why I bring up the automation question is because there will be, I think, a push for another new deal where there's a role for government employment. And I think that that's going to be something that is very controversial, very divisive. Um, but at some point, if we are facing a situation where tens of millions of people could be out of work in, in, in the next few decades as a result of automation, machine learning, all these sort of disruptive factors, um, there is going to be a serious, serious debate of the type of the new deal about is the government's role to provide for that for, for those jobs. My question is, if this is going to create such a situation, why is so much venture capital going into robotics and AI? What is the benefit if you're going to put 20 million more people permanently out of work? 
this is part of the dilemma for the Democrats because they have constituencies in coastal elite areas which are extremely in favor of uh, this type of economic shift. Why do you think that is? Well, because it's better for the economy overall. So, I mean, I think, you know... Why is that? See, I'm, yeah. that's how old I am. I don't yeah. understand why it's better for the economy. So, it'll be if you think about the economy as top-line statistics, which is something that too many people do and I think is a mistake... But if you think about it purely in GDP growth and things like that, automation is very good because it will reduce costs and it will increase productivity massively. I mean, it's sort of like the computer revolution, except for the computer revolution produced a huge number of jobs that automation may not because, you know, the robots might start fixing themselves. Um, so on, on the sort of economic indicators that we typically use to ascribe to economic performance, automation is a slam dunk. It's a great, great thing. Uh, the question is, can we have a strong economy if millions of people or tens of millions of people are put out of work? And the answer from a corporation's perspective is yes. The answer from somebody who lives in, say, you know, the Iron Range in Minnesota is certainly no. Um, and so that's where, you know, when you have an economic restructuring like that, you have to think outside the box. But for Democratic constituencies, most of them are happening in cities now. I mean, you know, you look at Trump loves to show that map of his victory, which is basically a sea of red across America with little pinpricks of blue. And that's the truth of the Democrats base is that it is an urban base. So in urban terms, most of the people who are benefiting from those economic shifts are in Democrat constituencies. And it will only continue to squeeze out the rural Democrats, most likely, who are struggling to sort of articulate a vision of here's what we do, uh, you know, to, to support farmers and, and various other people who are losing jobs through this, this process. But that's where I think the Democrats actually have an opportunity because they're the only party that would be able to articulate a genuine social democratic approach that would provide a different framework to employ these people. And the Republicans are not are certainly not doing that. They're just voicing these concerns in a way that, you know, people in the Iron Range of Minnesota think, okay, he actually cares about me. Uh, and, and that's working politically. I don't think it will work economically. If you were back on the campaign trail in Minnesota, what would you, how would you talk to that person in the Iron Range who's being snockered by, you know, Trump's populist rhetoric? What would you say to that person? I think it's about, I mean, it's a hard conversation to have because I think the thing that is a losing short-term strategy is to tell the truth where you say, look, in the Iron Range of Minnesota, it's an iron ore mining community that used to have its boomtown, you know, in the 1950s and 60s. And now it's a place where there's effectively, you know, antique shops and bars on Main Street. The average age is 65. And, and it's just sort of a place where young people leave. Um, and so the hard conversation is to say those jobs in the mines are not coming back. And they're not coming back in any sort of serious way because even if the mining companies do invest, there is so much automation in the process that they're not actually going to produce a you know, serious number of jobs. That's the hard part of the conversation. I think the better part of the conversation is to say there are ways that the government can produce, A, a social safety net, and B, uh, you know, support industries like clean energy that actually produce a ton of jobs. So one of my friends... Uh, works in wind power. He does data analytics for wind power, and that is really taking off in Minnesota. And there's, you know, a lot of the people who used to be in mining business or in various other sort of manufacturing roles, they're now working on wind turbines. So there's, you know, I think if there was a serious green energy revolution, there would be a lot more incentive for manufacturers and those sort of blue-collar jobs to come back to places like Minnesota. Uh, nobody I've, that I've seen has articulated that vision, and I think that's the lost opportunity. I'm reminded of <clears throat> Hillary Clinton did a town hall. I think it, was, it must have been in Wheeling, West Virginia. Um, certainly in West Virginia last 
last in 2016 and what she said basically what you said here a lot of we're going to you know we're going to have green energy and we're going to have to put we're going to put a lot of miners out of work and we're going to have to look after those people but when it was edited and put into an attack ad it was we're going to put a lot of miners out of work and she never recovered from that not that she was going to win west virginia but those ads bleed over into western pennsylvania and southeastern ohio where she might have had voters on the fence who walked away from the Democratic Party there. It's impossible to to have that discussion. But I think one of the things that that I have a problem with the Democratic Party is that there are too many people like you who are incredibly bright and young and and thoughtful, but the way you've been educated makes you separate out economics when you talk about it from society. The Automation revolution, if that's what it is, revolution, is going to so disrupt society that to simply think of it as terms as, oh, we have to talk to people about the new jobs that are going to be created without a government plan to fund those jobs and hence employment is not going to fly. And it will probably end up with, you know, even greater social disruption than electing someone so manifestly unsuitable for the presidency as Donald Trump. Yeah, I I think you're right. I mean, I think it is obviously a societal problem as well as an economic one. But I think, you know, this is where you're right to highlight that an economic-only approach will not work because there are some people, like Jeremy Corbyn, for example, in the UK has articulated support for a universal basic income where people sort of get a guaranteed income from the government. And that's divorced from the reality that people need a purpose in life, right? I mean, they just nobody, nobody wants to have a lack of dignity where they feel like they're just on the government dole um, because they live in rural Pennsylvania and the mine closed. So I think it's not just about articulating economic support. It's about articulating what is your role in life. And I think people, you know, several decades ago had a, had a more clear-cut idea of that. And I think the also, you know, really difficult thing is I think that there, is, there are solutions for young people growing up in these areas by which they can get trained in new technologies and new industries. I think the harder problem is what do you do for the person who's, say, 55 years old and has just lost their job in a mine and, you know, had decent benefits and a real purpose in life and is now going to have to find, you know, some sort of low-paying, no-benefit retail job or working at, a, you know, a local restaurant or something like that. And I think that that's something where you just cannot backfill the loss of that real purpose. Um, so, and, and the government, frankly, is not going to be able to do very much for people who are in the twilight of their careers looking for a renewed purpose when the old one has, has disappeared. So I think one of the things that anyone trying to tackle this problem has to think about is, is basic dignity and also the stopgap measures for people who are really realistically not going to end up off in Silicon Valley. You know, I mean, there are people from rural Minnesota who, who do sort of see the writing on the wall and they train themselves accordingly. Or in North Dakota, even, for example, there's a, there's a program for uh, drone maintenance, you know, I mean, where, where one of the universities has really invested in that. Um, and that's smart, but that's not something that you do when you're 60. You don't go back to school to get a, you know, two-year degree to fix drones and then do it for three years. Um, and instead, those people are either retiring early or they're working in, in really you know, poorly paid jobs with a lot of precariousness, which is unsustainable. How do you deal with that? I mean, this, it isn't just a democratic dilemma. It's a Republican dilemma. It's, yeah. it's a, the entire society should be thinking about this. It's never going to, it never will until you've got a critical mass of people dying early or rioting in the streets, 
because there's nothing for them. Well, that's why I mean, that's why I think the Democrats are making a mistake in sort of ceding the rural grounds to Republicans, because the, the real problem is a misperception problem. The, the, the Donald Trump has articulated effectively, I think, that there was a forgotten mass of people who really were hammered by both the financial crisis and trends in global trade and globalization. Um, you know, and working class Americans have seen flatlining wages as a result of trade, even though the U.S. economy has grown considerably. So he tapped into that beautifully, along with, you know, cultural alienation and these sort of anxieties about demographic change and this very potent cocktail. Democrats sort of just gave up. I mean, and I think Hillary Clinton, in a way, was, uh, you know, a perfect emblem of this problem in the sense that she, this, she was one of the people who didn't need to give this up. Bill Clinton was viewed across America and especially in rural America as a place who, as a person who brought, uh, you know, real positive growth and, and to some extent, prosperity, even into sort of, you know, the, the, the message of being from hope and everything. And so what I would have, you know, if she, if she had a, a bit smarter um, pre-campaign period, rather than doing the speeches, which she got absolutely hammered for, you know, going to Wall Street and giving paid speeches, doing a, a sort of listening tour in rural America, and then coming up with a plan for revitalization. That would have been very smart. It could have been done in tandem with Bill Clinton, uh, you know, controversies that he, he may bring. I think it would have been all things equal, a really big benefit and a, and a strong defense for her against those attacks. But I don't have the, you know, I've, I don't have the answer for how to fix rural America in a soundbite. But I do think that you have to tap into that anger the same way that Donald Trump did, but actually say, look, Donald Trump hasn't done anything but double down on this process, and the trade wars victims uh, are are all in rural America. I mean, they're people who can't, who are going to hit, be hit by higher prices at retail sh- retail shops, most of which are, you know, now WalMarts in these areas. And they're also going to lose manufacturing jobs. And in places like Minnesota or, you know, the sort of breadbasket of America, soybeans are getting absolutely hammered by by the trade war with China. So these people are starting, I think, to understand that his solutions are not actually solutions. They're exacerbating the problem. And that, again, opens the window for Democrats. But the wedge that you talk about is how do you become a party that simultaneously speaks to a Manhattan executive and somebody who's a farmer in Iowa and, and that's where, again, that elasticity of the party is so essential, where you can have candidates you recruit that focus on different areas. So how do you see the midterm results? I think that the House will go to the Democrats. I would be very surprised if that does not happen. I think the Senate is more in play than people anticipate. Um, I think the Kavanaugh hearings uh, will help that. I think that the, you know, the, the Kavanaugh hearings are going to exacerbate the gender gap and they're going to you know create more incentives for women who are on the fence to break for the democrats you know in these wave elections which is what i think we're heading towards they tend to break the same way you saw this in the tea party and actually the election that i worked on in 2010 in minnesota was the only democratic pickup of a republican seat in the entire country because almost every election that was a toss-up broke for the republicans in that election if that happens here you know you the democrats would only need to pick up say you know, two of the seats in either Nevada, Arizona, or Tennessee, which are all, you know, currently considered toss-ups, uh, while retaining, you know, some difficult seats in places like West Virginia. But it seems, based on the polling, feasible. Um, and, and it would radically shift the Trump presidency if both houses of Congress were were controlled by Democrats. I think the really important thing that people often lose sight of is subpoena power, because the committees in Congress have subpoena power, and they will subpoena every document under the sun related to Donald Trump, and they should because of the ethics abuses he's had. So 
Trump organization, tax returns, all these things will become public if the Democrats take even one House of Congress. And I think that will kneecap his presidency because I think there is a lot of stuff in there that he does not want being made public. Brian, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear lots more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. And please make a donation to keep these podcasts coming for another year. Thanks.